Well, good morning, everybody. Um, and um, lovely to be here. And thank you very much to Denise and to John for uh, asking me to speak today on this Feast of Candlemas. I'm Justin, as you mostly know, normally seen waving my arm at the choir. I've been inspired this week by the daily reflections from the Center for Action and Contemplation in San Francisco, founded by Franciscan father Richard Rohr. I recommend you sign up to their mailing list. In this week's reflections, Richard Rohr invites us to consider the three domes of meaning in which we're called to live. Just as the body needs food, he writes, so the soul needs meaning and the spirit needs ultimate meaning. Often that meaning is communicated through story. The smallest dome of meaning is my private world of interests, my story, where we proudly proclaim, this is me. The modern and postmodern world is the first period of history where a large number of people have been allowed to take their private lives and identities seriously. My story, is the vernacular, the native language of talk shows, blogs, and social media. This marks a wonderful movement into individuation. It's very good as far as it goes, but there is also a diminishment and fragility, if that is all we have. The dome of my story is often all the postmodern person has left. My power, my prestige, my possessions. It's the little stage where I do my dance, and where the questions are usually, who is watching me? How do I feel? What do I believe? What makes me unique? However, when we're able to move beyond the small self at the right time and in the right place, the right way, it will feel precisely as if we've lost nothing. In fact, it will feel like freedom and liberation. Richard Raw goes on to say, there is a second and larger dome of meaning that encloses the first. I call this our story, where we declare this, this is us. This is where most people in all of human history have lived most of their lives, identifying completely with their ethnicity, their gender, their group, their religion, and their occupations. The biblical tradition honors both of these domes of meaning and takes each of them seriously. The life of the individual and the life of the nation of Israel are both arenas for God's action, but religious traditions affirm that they are connected to something infinite too. The third dome of meaning that encloses the two smaller ones is the story. By this we're referring to the patterns that are always true, beyond anecdote and beyond my cultural history. The biblical tradition takes all three levels seriously. My story, our story, and the story. Biblical revelation says that the only way we can move to the story and understand it with any depth is to walk through and take responsibility for both our personal story and our group story. Anything less we now call spiritual bypassing. This is quite common amongst many fundamentalist groups, jumping to spiritual answers or theology without any honest self-knowledge or any knowledge of history. 
We've got to listen to our own experience, to our own failures, to our own gifts and calls. Plus, we have to recognize that we're a part of history, a part of culture, part of a religious group, a nationality, a gender, for good and for bad. When all three domes of meaning are de deemed worthy of love and attention, says Richard Rohr, we are now connected to something expansive and inexhaustible, and we can become a useful and contributing citizen in both this world and the reign of God. Water. <clears throat> so, Candlemas is our feast of light when we commemorate the prophetic faith of Anna and Simeon who saw in the tiny infant Jesus the light of the whole world. Anna was 84 years old and had been a widow for something like 60 years and never left the temple but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. Simeon is described as righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Looking forward to the consolation of Israel. I found myself wondering about Simeon this week. What must it have been like to live your entire life under the brutal military occupation of Rome, tormented by this promise, this dream of hope that wouldn't go away, burning, yearning, rankling in your heart before you die? Before you die, you will see the one who will set your people free. How did Simeon keep the flame of hope alive? And things just seemed to get worse and worse. I wondered whether maybe he was a bit like my Palestinian friend Zugbi al-Zugbi, founder of WIAM, Reconciliation Center in Bethlehem, running art programs for children as a means of processing and healing the traumas inflicted on them by the current brutal military occupation in the Holy Land. Every day we could be angry, says Zugbi legitimately, but as the Israelis are destroying our lives, we are transforming them, turning the garbage of our anger and hate into the flower and tree of compassion. I wonder whether the prophet Anna might have been a bit like my friend Abdel Fattah Abuzroor, director of Al-Rawad Youth Theatre in Ida refugee camp in Bethlehem. Right in the shadow of the wall amongst a cramped population living as refugees since 1948, Al-Rawad teaches theater, dance, music, and photography to Palestinian teenagers as an expression of hope to counter the daily humiliation and despair of the occupation. When I see these kids, says Abdel Fattah, and my own kids, I realize that as Palestinian refugees, we don't have the luxury of despair. Instead, we choose beautiful resistance. Or maybe Simeon and Anna were both a bit like the amazing Sami Awad, founder of the Holy Land Trust in Bethlehem, running courses for young Palestinians in nonviolent resistance, gender equality, and conflict resolution. On one of my visits to Bethlehem, I remember Sami saying, Jesus was born lived and died in a land under military occupation and he rose from the dead and proclaimed the new kingdom in a land under military occupation. We 
Palestinians can't afford to wait for someone else to come and give us our freedom. We must claim and embrace our freedom now in the mind, heart, and actions in preparation for the day when freedom becomes a political reality. These are some of the groups that we support in the Holy Land through Amos Trust. So Simeon and Anna had spent their whole lives waiting, working, and praying for God's promised liberation, despite every discouragement, setback, disappointment, until this moment, when they meet a teenage girl with her not-very-well-off carpenter husband and their tiny six-week-old baby. And suddenly, a wild hope blazes in their hearts. And taking Jesus in his arms, Simeon cries out the words which have been sung across the world and down the ages ever since. Nunc dimittis. Now let me die in peace, Lord. Your promise is fulfilled. And in his radical prophecy, the three domes of meaning align. Simeon's deepest desire, his lifelong hope, is fulfilled. My story. But in Jesus, he also sees the fulfillment of his own people's ancient hope for deliverance. Our story. Then, astoundingly, he goes further. This child will be the hope, healing, and liberation for the whole world. To light, a light to lighten the Gentiles. The Gentiles, pagans, non-Jews, like the Romans. Yes, the Romans who occupy our country, steal our land to build their palaces on, rape our wives and daughters, imprison and kill our children. Or, as Palestinians today might say, who withhold the vaccine from our people trapped in Gaza and the West Bank. Those people occupying our land, they are awful people. Our promised Messiah is for them as well. Yes, beyond my story, beyond our story, is the story. The story of reconciliation, the story of forgiveness, the story which transcends us and them, the story of hope. And this kind of hope, this kind of light, is not some sort of sentimental ideal, but rather is born or kindled out of the absolute rock bottom of grief, anguish, horror, injustice, ruin. Hope, writes Rowan Williams, is by its nature something projected into the dark. Candlemas is not an invitation to cheer up. Rather, it's an invitation to own, embrace, and articulate the full bleakness, anxiety, fear, or hopelessness of our feelings, our situations, and then what? God is always in the facts. This is the refrain of Gerard Hughes' wonderful book, God of Surprises, which reintroduced the modern world to Ignatian spirituality for Christians God is always in the facts. The only way out is through. How can we find a deep hope, a courageous hope, a hope right from the center of our souls, which is not just denial or cloud cuckoo land? 
Well, says Gerard Hughes, following the practice of St. Ignatius, let's start with the facts, with where you are, with who you are, what's going on for you in your life, in your heart. Where do we encounter God? Through the Bible, through the community of faith, through the natural world, yes. But vitally, the place where we encounter God most consciously is in our deepest desires. What do you feel? What do you desire? What do you fear? What do you hope for? Christian contemplative traditions invite us to bring before God all our thoughts, desires, terrors, anxieties, appetites, hopes, despair, and breathing through them, praying that we may let God be the God of love and compassion in our lives. The imprint of God, our loving creator, in the deepest, truest place in our souls affirms that beneath every conflicting desire, what we actually want, most of all, if only we could realize it, is also what God wants for us, to be living temples in whom the God of love and compassion dwells, people of hope, hopeful people. And when we encounter such people, as Rowan Williams says in a memorable phrase, we want to breathe the same air that they breathe. Seen against this kind of bigger picture theology, we can practice hopeful actions, light candles of hope and plant trees of hope, regardless of whether we ourselves expect to reap the rewards, like the builders of medieval cathedrals who knew that they might never live to see the finished result, but their children or their grandchildren might. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, <laughs> I would still plant my apple tree. We believe that hopeful actions contribute in the economy of God to the ultimate healing, restoration, and happiness of all creation. Why are you doing that? Because my story isn't the whole story. Because beyond my story is our story. And beyond that, there's the story. So I'm planting a tree. This defiance is expressed wonderfully by Puddle Glum in the silver chair in our second reading, which Adrian gave us. Suppose we have only dreamed up or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself, then all I can say is that the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. Or as the amazing young African-American poet Amanda Gorman put it so wonderfully at Joe Biden's inauguration, we've braved the belly of the beast, we've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always justice. Every breath from my bronze-pounded chest, we will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. Hope imagines the future, wrote the American theologian and activist Walter Wink, and then acts as if that future is irresistible. So what do we hope for? 
for ourselves, for our families and communities, for our world? How do we care for ourselves and for each other when we feel hopeless? Are we afraid to hope, afraid to be disappointed again, to be hurt again? Where is God calling us to turn our eyes to see signs of hope? Where do we see hope in others in the world to inspire us? What dreams of hope is God kindling in us? What should we do now, today, to bring those hopes a step nearer?